Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome along to another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Today, you're going to hear from former SAS soldier, bodyguard and TV star, Mark Billy Billingham. Billy's the most decorated member of the SAS Who Dares Wins team, and he served in Iraq, Belize and Mogadishu, but he also spent time as a personal bodyguard for some of Hollywood's biggest stars. You're going to hear some cracking stories about his work with Clint Eastwood, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and even Hulk Hogan. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Mark Billy Billingham, thanks for joining me, mate. And uh, you're just back from Australia, aren't you? Where you've been filming a series of SAS Who Dears Wins. I am, Andy. That's correct. Uh, well, we got back in, I think it was end of September. Uh, yeah, we just filmed our first sort of series over there, which was very, very successful. Were you surprised with the celebrities over there? What, what was the caliber like? Yeah, I mean, I've been asked the question before. How do they compare to the UK celebrities um, that we've had before? And I'll be very honest. Uh, these guys were the Australians were more prepared, I think. They, they, they seemed a lot fitter. There was a few not so fit, which was, was good to have. But majority were right, you know, cricketers, rugby players, athletes anyway, so and swimmers. So they, they were very, very fit. So it, it was, we had a great sort of benchmark to start with in terms of pushing them physically. Obviously, mentally, we're all different and everyone's different anyway and different breaking strains at different times. But, um, yeah, it was a great, definitely physical, because a lot of it is physical anyway. Yeah. Uh, so it was a great starting point. And, yeah, they were in good shape, to be honest. Does that mean you can make it harder for them because they start off fitter, you've got to, it's, it's going to be harder to break them? Exactly that, yeah. We could start at a real sort of fast pace and go to the fast. <laughs> and, and it's glasses. a good challenge for us, to be honest. This was a good challenge for us. You know, we don't normally get to push, get pushed to this sort of uh, physical level, level ourselves, but because of the standard that they were after, let's just say after the first week, because we got rid of a few people that really didn't want to be there or couldn't be there. Then the standard was, it was pretty high. So it was good for us. It was a good challenge for us, which we enjoy. Nick Cummins, the honey badger, hell of a character. Mm. He's been on a few shows over in Australia, the bachelor, oh, he's yeah. played rugby for Australia. Uh, what was he like? Cause it was, he, was he as much of a character? Did he have much chirp about him off camera as well? I think we, we all felt, because we'd heard a little bit of his past, he's a bit of a boy, oh, you know, he's he's kind of got told wrong information. He, he's not the great disciplinarian that you might want to expect. But he was absolutely brilliant. He was totally respectful to everything. And I think he was there to prove something to himself, to his family, to his friends. And he really wanted to to listen, learn, and push himself to the, the maximum on, on uh, the fitness and on the psychological as well. So he was he was the ultimate perfect uh, recruit, if I'm honest. One thing we did notice about him, he suffered probably more than most in the cold, but he never gave up. You, if, if you get a chance to see the whole program, I mean, from sort of the first week, I remember sitting, looking at him and he couldn't control his jaw. You know, when somebody's that cold and they get that rattling, his hair, he looked like Fuzzy Bear with his hair. He was all straight. And I was looking and thinking, that guy's not going to last. 
But no, nah, he just, nothing was going to stop him. I just finished reading your book and I knew that you were a, a decorated war veteran. I knew about the SAS stuff, but I didn't realize mm. how much of a high roller you were in the celebrity security world. How did, how did that come about, being a bodyguard for the, for the big dogs? I'll tell you, I mean, what happened was, and, and it kind of happens with a lot of special forces guys all around the world, you, you kind of get uh, cherry-picked for certain jobs because people kind of not know you personally, but they know the background we come from. You know, we've done some pretty good stuff and we're pretty well-trained generally and, and respected and that stuff. But what happened was a good friend of mine had already stepped out of the regiment and he was running a security company, uh, company that was dedicated to... Uh, A-list celebrities so he was kind of already in that field and he was then looking for people he could trust and get involved and I started moonlighting before I left the regiment you can't do that though can you no not legally you can't but I did <laughs> you know we had a couple of weekends off or this up the other and then he literally said to me would you be interested in helping out and I said yeah I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit and uh, I, you know the first little gig I did was looking after um, Hulk Hogan believe it or not Oh, you were bodyguard for Hulk Hogan. Yeah, mate. I mean, how tall, how tall are you, Billy? How much are you weighing in at? I'm six foot and I was I was about, at the time, because it was this was actually the power register before I went to the regiment. I was six foot and I was like nine, ten stone. Yeah. He was like, I was about the size of his arm. And I <laughs> never forget, he met me and uh, I got introduced because, yeah, Billy will be taking care of you. It was only for a couple of nights while he was doing some wrestling in London. And uh, he looked at me, and I could see him looking at me, and I could, I could read his mind. And he was going, this bloke is either hard as nails or totally mental or both. <laughs> so he didn't know what to say. So I just played it really cool. I goes, right, he's a deal. This is all I want you to do. Da, 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 da. What do you need to achieve? And he was like, yeah, great. And that's how it worked. He was really respectful of, of that. But he, I remember an incident, uh, uh, not an incident, a situation, just before he came down to the ring to wrestle. Uh, I think it was at Wembley. And there was two ladies, one either side of him, you know, all for the show. And I was off to one side. And even the women were bigger than me. And people, I can remember people looking going, that's his bodyguard. And they were thinking the same. That block must be hard as nails or mad. I'm not going to risk <laughs> any trouble in case that little fella there makes us look a fool. And he just, as he's walking down the ring, he just picked these two girls. We were probably about six foot two either. And just put them on his shoulder. And they just, off he went to the, <laughs> and I was right. like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, so... It started there, you know, I go into that, a little bit of weekend work, extra money, that sort of stuff. And then when I was in the regiment, uh, I got, I was, you know, I was doing a weekend here, weekend there, wherever I got a bit of time. Because I was, I was at the point, I was, you know, I was already at 26 something years or whatever it was. And I knew I was about to step out. And it was a good introduction to me to see if I wanted to do that. Mm. So that's, that's how it came about. I ended up looking after Tom Cruise, DMX, a few other people, Kate yeah. Moss. Yeah, tell me about, there was an incident, I mean, you, I don't know what the difference is between an incident, mm. incident and a situation which you just sort of talked about before, but there, yeah. I, I think it was an incident, wasn't it, with Tom Cruise on your, yeah. first, your first gig. Can you talk me through your first gig with Tom Cruise? Yeah, Tom was coming to Rome for three or four days. Um, I didn't know exactly why he was doing, why he was coming, I thought he was filming, but he wasn't, he was already filming in, in there. New Zealand, actually, it was uh, the last summer. I was, it was halfway through filming that. So I get this job to look after him. I fly, fly into Rome. Normally, I'd go in the day before, but I didn't get the luxury of doing that. I got in sort of eight, ten hours before him. So I'll get to the hotel, check out the hotel, check out what's going on, where his room is, where mine is, all the safety stuff that you do as a bodyguard. What happened was, when I got to the hotel, 
there's already a big bunch of people hanging around. And I thought, what's the deal? Because it was all supposed to be, you know, kept under the radar, quiet. This is one of your first gigs as well, isn't it? It's a very, yeah, really the proper first one, I guess, where I was totally in charge of everything. So anyway, so I came out and I'm looking around and I thought, I met this paparazzi guy, Italian, who spoke English. I says, so what's happening? He goes, um, Tom Cruise is coming. I went, what? He says, yeah, Tom Cruise is coming. Okay. I said, well, how did you know that? And he wouldn't tell us how he knew, but they knew. So they're waiting. I said, okay, no problem. And his name was Pablo or whatever it was. I can't really remember. So we'll call him Pablo. I started talking to him and said, hey, you know, he's a deal. I'm his bodyguard. And he went, oh, really? So he is coming. Because, <laughs> well, you obviously know he's coming. So I said, he's a deal. I said, I'm going to take him to another hotel unless you guys get out of the way and give some, some space. So we made some sort of little arrangement what to do. Because there's no way I could control. I'm talking about 150, probably 200 people already. Mm. So I go off to the airport. I meet Tom for the very first time. Comes walking towards me. And it's like I knew him. We had a little chat. I said, here's the deal. I said, the hotel, your cover's already blown. And he was quite upset by it because he wanted to keep a real low profile. I said, so here's the deal. When we get to the hotel, stay in the vehicle. Don't get out till I tell you to get out. Okay. And again, very respectful man. I said, I'm the security. This is what I'm going to do. Don't be afraid. If I grab you, push you, he goes, oh, no, no problem. It's fine. And I says, what do you need to achieve? I need to be at this place, do this, do this. I says, let work with me and I'll, I'll get it sorted. No problem. So off we go. We get to the, so we're in the car. We're traveling down to the hotel. And as we get to the hotel now, the, the crowd's doubled. It's massive. I can't even see the front of the hotel. I'm like, oh, my God. How the, am I going to deal with this? So he's like looking at me and I'm in the front seat. I jump out. I goes, right, stay in the car, lock the door. So I jump out. And I'm looking for this, in this crowd, this person I've already spoke to called Pablo. And I'm like looking around for him and I can't, and there he is. And I'm like, Pablo, I warned you. And as I said it, he shouted something in Italian. And the whole crowd of paparazzi fans just all stepped to the side. So I could have a clear walk all the way down to the entrance of the hotel. And I'm like that, thinking, wow. Nailed it. As I look around, Tom's like that. What that just happened? So I went back to the car all day, color it, right, okay. Here's the deal. Stand on my right hand side. No, sorry. Stand on my left hand side. We'll walk down. What, why as we get to the why is it a big deal on if he stands on your left or your right? Is there a... my right? So my right looks better than my left. Look. <laughs> 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 no, you see, I, I, I'm a right-handed person. I can operate and grab and take, take control. So got I you. always like to, and I feel more secure having somebody on my left. I've got. I feel like I've got. I knew there'd be some detail behind that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm stronger. Stronger on my right-hand side in terms of dealing with multi things so we walked down and i told him i says listen we're just going to do a 10 second stop so they can get forward he goes yeah okay billy no problem it's, it's fine so we get down there and everyone's kind of waving sharing photographs being taken at the side and we get to this point just in front of these rotating doors which i hate those things trying to get mm. through those things but i'm thinking okay no deal no problem turn around they get photographs and Finish the photographs, he does a quick wave. We turn around, we're just about to step into the doorway. And um, from my right-hand side, I just saw blue. And I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't have time to turn and react. So I grabbed him with my left hand, got him in, got around the, I thought it was around the shoulders, I got him around the neck. And then I grabbed this thing that was running at me blue. And we fell into the, into the rotating doorways. And as we fall into the rotating doorways, I've got these two heads looking at each other and trying to look up at me. And Tom turned around to me and goes, Billy, meet Penelope, my girlfriend. <laughs> it was his girlfriend. And she had this big blue crazy hat on. Anyway, it was Penelope hilarious. Penelope Cruz. So we, yeah. 
Penelope Cruz. And that's why he was actually coming over to spend the long weekend with her. But I didn't know this. I didn't get briefed on this bit. So we end up in the lift and he goes, he grabs me and he goes, Billy, formal introduction now. He's Penelope. Penelope, this is Billy. Any high feelings? I mean, her hair was a bit ruffled up. I think she had a few choice words after she got out the elevator, you know, but not directly at me. She was like, <laughs> the, the death grip I just had around the neck, she probably didn't want that anymore. <laughs> oh no, but God. she was great, and, and, and he was great. And it, after that, it went smooth, really, really smooth. You know, we, we're in a, a – her mum was there in Rome. She was she was auditioning for something, and he was just coming over to see her. And we ended up in all these little restaurants. And it worked really well, to be honest, because – Whatever I said to do, he would do. If the crowd's got too much, and I say no, we're not doing it. He, he thought, okay, that's that's fine. So it was a great relationship, and and like I said, that was my step out of the regiment or part about to step out of the regiment. I thought, you know what, I can actually do this. It's all right. It's good. Mm. So that was it. That was kind of my stepping stone of leaving the military. You met uh, Clint Eastwood at one point. He must have been a boyhood hero as well, really. Yeah, and he still. I mean, let's be honest. Who don't like Clint Eastwood? How could you not like him? He um, after I left the regiment, I I was uh, working with Brad and Angelina, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and um, after a period of time, Angie got a job with Clint out in uh, California. And it was, so that that's what the job was, and we go out there. And Clint's the director of the of the film. So it was really nice to meet him and I get on set and there's a few of the security guards there and I can't remember which other actors they were with and they were all like V-shaped, six foot big dudes and I was like, me? And I remember and she was the, the, the main actor on this sh- in this film, you know, the, the, the A-list number one sort of actor, the, 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 the primary talent. So I'm with her and I remember one day, I mean, Clint straight from word go was very nice again, very respectful and said what has to happen, where she has to be, da, 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 all that sort of stuff. And then one day I'm stood, and we're on on the on the set. They're filming a little bit about the hanging of the the guy that gets caught for the, the stealing kids. And I'm leaning against his post, just like this. And there's a couple of big bodyguards around. I'm watching Clint, and he's not watching what he's. I think he's supposed to be doing. He's watching us. He's like looking at these bodyguards, and then he looks at me, and he comes over to me, and he leans down, and in that accent, you know, it was funny. He goes, "Hey, so what do you do?" And I looked at him. What do you mean? He goes, do you do karate, boxing, jujitsu? What is it? And I went, I think. He went, you do what? I goes, I think. He goes, what does that mean? He goes, I, I says, I think about a situation. I think about a problem. I do my due diligence. I do all my research and I'll avoid it. If I need to roll around the floor with somebody, I'll get one of them big dudes to do it and I'll get Angie out the way. Otherwise, if I'm rolling around the floor, she's vulnerable. He went, I like that. <laughs> and then thereafter, thereafter, you know, we didn't talk to all the big dudes. He came to me every day. And he'd go, how's it going, bodyguard? And we'd have a great chat. And and then we got, got on really, really well. Really, really well. And it, to the extent that we ended up at his 84th birthday party, I think it was, me and my wife. It wasn't my wife at the time. We were still dating. And, uh, yeah, th- there was a wedding taking place there through a friend and through Sean Penn, who was – best man at it we were invited it just happened to be at his place called mission ranch and yeah we had a we had a night celebrating with him for his birthday and stuff because you're good mates for sean penn now as well aren't you yeah i've been good friends with sean for a long time yeah but i met sean really for the first time again working with angie Uh, sorry working with brad they did a film called uh tree of life together um and yeah we became real good friends and 
thereafter, I was in Haiti after the earthquake, uh, went out there to do some uh, work and, and donate some stuff out there. And that 10 days after the earthquake, and I was, while I was out there, I was in a tent and I heard this voice and there he was, it was Sean. We'd met previous to that and he goes, what are you doing? Oh. I'm what are you doing? And he did a great job out there, you know? So we did stuff with his charity and stuff. And, you know, thereafter met up with him for drinks in London, around the world. And he calls me now and again to meet up and stuff. Yeah, a real good guy. When you were working with Brad and Angelina, isn't that when you got busted for moonlighting? Because you're not supposed to be doing that. And to be honest, I mean, you do say you think, but like when you think about it, when you think about the situation, you're not allowed to be doing that. And then you're bodyguarding for the most famous couple in the world. Yeah, I was thinking because most regiment blokes and not interested in that world at all. And I thought, how would anybody know? And what actually happened was the commanding officer and the adjutant had gone to Baghdad and another squadron was in Baghdad at the time and they'd just been in did this operation and they're back having a beard in their little bar area and having some food and the TV's on and <laughs> on the TV's I think we're at Cannes at the film festival and there's just a short clip of Angie and Brad walking down and me and the sales <laughs> went he went he turned to the adjutant and went that's Billy. He went, no, no, no. The adjutant was a good friend of mine. He was trying to cover me. He goes, no, no, boss, that, that's his brother. It's his brother. He went, you sure about that? that? Anyway, left it out there. Then some time later, um, basically, I ended up on the front of a magazine, of course. And he got a copy <laughs> of it. And, uh, and and he went from there. But that was my exit out of the military, to be honest. Because, yeah. again, I was at the, that point of about a leave. Anyway, I had some time off. It was my leave. And I went over to work with them and while I was there it came apparent that the guy who saw on the TV was me then he's got the, the, the magazine he went hang on a minute you know when you when you talked about before about the the size of the other bodyguards there was a bit of a clique when you when you first went into Hollywood wasn't there and yeah. they were like who's this all the other bodyguards sort of stick together in Hollywood and um, you were yeah. a bit of an outsider in the beginning weren't you did, did you get treated like yeah, that yeah I was yeah, I did initially. I was the new kid on the block, basically. And what it was, it, it was actually at Cairns. I'm with, again, the, the two main A-lists, Brad and Angie. And I'm the new face. All these bodyguards were, well, it was he. The last bodyguard they knew wasn't there. Now it was me. And long story short, we're at the, the Cap Hotel. And they're on the balcony. Everyone's having a drink. All the, all the clients, all the uh, A-lists are all inside chatting about. And all the bodyguards are on the balcony. And I was on the balcony. I went to sort of say hello to everybody, everybody just shunned me. Even to the wow. point where I went to walk through the door, one of the bodyguards let the door go on my face and he was a big dude. And I'd already heard that a lot of them were saying they're SAS, which a lot of people do out there. People say they're SAS, SBS, Special Forces, all this stuff, and they're not. Yeah. But no one ever un uncovers it. So I'm, I'm sat on my own. They've all been shunned by all of them. They're all in little groups. I'm just the new kid no one wants to talk to. And um, Brad's makeup artist who's been around a long time Jeannie, wonderful woman total no bullshit woman mm. you know anyway see she saw what had happened and came out and she knew all these bodyguards from years before anyway and she came over to me and says hey everything cool i went yeah it's good and she walked out she talked i'm watching her she's speaking to all these groups of people and then they're all looking at me i thought it's a bit weird so when brand and Angie got ready to leave i get up to leave with them to walk through this crowd of kind of hostile bunch but not you know just ignoring me. All of a sudden, they're moving out the way. They're moving chairs out of my way. They're opening the door for me. And I was like, what? And then I realized what had happened. Jeannie had walked around and said, hey, you guys. 
you're all SAS, right? And they're all going, you're all, yeah, yeah, we are. Goes, well, he was a sergeant major of B Squadron 2 to SAS. Why don't you know him? How come? And then they're all like, shit, he's the real deal. He's going to blow our cover, which I wouldn't yes. have done. But they're all like, oh. And the big guy who let the door go on my face was like, he's holding it for me. He was almost shuffling me out. I think that was a time where I really did start to say, yeah, I am SAS because I actually I was. And, you, you know, you spend all your time in the military trying to get in the SAS and the rest of your life denying it. Then I realized in, in the workspace that I was in now, everybody was lying and saying they were this, that, the other. And I actually was. And it felt weird to me to say I was SAS, but I had to in the end say, look, I, yeah, I am SAS. And I, yeah, mm. I can prove it if you need me to. Didn't, you, didn't that bodyguard um, that slammed the door in your face, didn't you, didn't you have another sort of run-in with him where you, where you got a bit of karma <laughs> back? Yeah, it, it was brilliant. It was so, I thought you might ask this. It was Ocean's 13 was the... Um, was was a film that we were there for for Brad's film, and so basically there's 13 actors: Brad, George Clooney, um, Andy's. Well, anyway, all these I can't remember all, but all these actors they've all got their own bodyguards. Number one car was Brad because he was the number one actor. Number two was George, and the bodyguard I'm talking about was George Clooney's. He's the big guy, big Italian guy, and um, so I jump in the front car with Brad. He's in the next one, all the way, and so on and so forth, all the way up the line. And we're going to drive down onto the red carpet. And first time I've been in front of all this paparazzi, all this media, all this stuff, like, and I thought, wow, this is going to be great. Just as we're about to leave, Brad says to me, he goes, hey, is it okay if I get in the back of the car behind us and talk to George? I need to talk to him about something. And he said, and I looked at him, I thought, well, there's no real danger. I can't say no. So I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I'm now sat in an empty car. And then I'm thinking, so I'm going to turn up. I went, nah, I ain't. So I walked to the second car, and this bodyguard, who was massive, his head is filling the whole window. George and Brad are sat in the back. And, I, and my heart's pumping, but he can't say that. I tap the window, and the window comes, get, comes down, and I went out. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I was shitting myself. Anyway, he looked at me, and he got out. <laughs> and I went, right, get in that front car. So he gets in the empty car, and I jump in the seat, close the door, and I'm watching in the mirror, I could see Brad and George going, what the has just happened? And as we started to roll off, Brad puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, you don't like uh, Gino, I think he's now. You don't like Gino, do you, Billy? I goes, no, no, he's okay. He went, that's my man. You're the man. <laughs> <laughs> and when we got out the other side, he, he pulls me to one side yes. and goes, what was that all about? He goes, he, he said to me, Brad, he goes, he's not SAS, is he? I went, no, he's not. You leave it. Then you went from being a, a bodyguard to being in, in a movie yourself, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, and again, that came about because of the friendship with Sean. Sean quite often used to ring me up after, anyway, he'd be in a certain movie or do certain things. Like, hey, if there was a military aspect or a weapons aspect or something that was kind of military related, he'd ring me up and say, hey, how would you deal with this? And how would you do that? You know, just for some ideas and experience. And I'd say what I thought about it, and some of it he'd use, some of it he wouldn't. And we, like I said, we were friends for a long time. And then one day he just rings me up out of the blue, as he does. And he goes, hey, what are you up to? And I went, well, I just got back a bit away uh, with my wife in America. We just got back. And I said, uh, well, I'm just having a few beers, mate. What, what are you up to? And he goes, oh, I'm going to Barcelona. I need you to come with me. And I'm, mate, I can't. I've got to go back over to the States to Jules. And he knows Jules, my wife. And he goes, mate, I really need you to come. But he wouldn't tell me why. And I thought, he's in trouble again, as normal. There's a ticket for you. There's a ticket for Jules. So I said, let me call Jules. I'll call my wife. I said, hey, Sean wants me to. As soon as I said, Sean, she said, no, you're coming back to the States. I, was, he, I said, but he wants, no. 
I says, babe, it's in Barcelona as a ticket for you. She goes, okay, we'll go. <laughs> so anyway, he nice. then said to me, just before I leave to go to Barcelona, to, to Barcelona, he said, there'll be a, I'll send you a document through email, have a look at it, start reading it. And he sent it and it was a script. And I'm looking at the scripts and I went, well, what's he sending me this for? I can't read a script. You know, to me, it might as well have been Chinese. I was like, what the hell? What's he want me to do with this? And then there's a character highlighted, which was um, Reed. And he goes, that's you. So he's got all this, and there's, you know, Elder Elvis in there, uh, uh, Ray Winston, all, all these back, big actors. That, and me. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, and we, we end up in Barcelona. Um, Got meet, meeting all these people and I'm trying to follow this script and I'm I was really struggling with it and I said to Sean Sean I don't know if I could do that and he said well why not and a lot of the terminology was American anyway and I went I wouldn't say that as we I was basically playing the part, part of a, of um, an assassin part of an assassin team you know ultimately and I was reading I said I wouldn't he says well what do you say and I said what I would say if there was a military and he goes I'd say that you could say that. So I did. So anything I had to say in it was just me being natural, just get on with it. And yeah, so we end up there and, and then we start doing all the filming and, and it was real good fun. It was, it was hilarious. I mean, the whole of that jungle scene that you see out in the Congo was filmed in Barcelona airport. And then the part of the vehicle where I get my ass out and stick my ass in Sean's face, which is brilliant, was actually filmed in Wimbledon. For me, it was a great experience. Yeah. And, 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 I don't think the film was that bad. I don't think it was brilliant, but it was, it was really enjoyable. Did that kind of lead to the SAS Who Dares Win stuff? You, you know, you were working the film and TV industry? No? No. No, I didn't. No, what, what had happened was um, there was a period where I just went back to doing security in Iraq, a little bit of bodyguard work, and I, out the blue I get a call from a mate of mine who said, hey, we're putting this programme together. I know you've done some TV work before, da 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 and because of your experience, would you want to come and do it? And I says, well, what is it? And he said, um, SAS who dares wins. And as soon as he said SAS, I went, nah, it's going to be cheesy. It's going to be somewhat crazy. You know, I don't want to get involved in it. So I said, no, nah, I'm not really interested, mate, to be honest. And the show went out. But literally days after that, I get asked again, will you do a show called, um, what was it? Are you tough enough? Um, special Forces, are you tough enough? Or, I can't remember the exact name, but it's something like that for the BBC. And I went, what, what's that involved? And I said, and it was a bunch of, again, males and females in groups, in, in patrols, going through all military type experience, but different special forces. There, there was Australian SAS had taken for three days, then Israeli SAS, then um, German SAS special forces. And then the final one was SAS, uh, British SAS, which I'd be involved in. And it was with Freddie Flintoff, the cricketer. And I thought, ah, Freddie, good lad. He likes a drink. I'll have a look at that. So I was going to do it. And I went down to, and he started filming exactly the same time as SES Series 1. And I went down, met Freddie. And the day I met him, I'd just come back from Nigeria doing a bodyguard job. And I'm sat at the table, like we're opposite each other now. And the producers are talking to me going, hey, and Freddie going, are you okay? And I went, I think I'm all right. I don't feel too good, to be honest. And my face was dripping off. And I knew what it was. I had malaria oh, for the fourth shit. time now. Yeah, so I'm now, tomorrow I'm supposed to be filming this program, which runs exactly the same time as SAS, but on a different place. And I was, I was like, I don't know, I don't think so. Anyway, long story short, obviously I didn't do it. I ended up in hospital with uh, cerebral malaria, which was really bad. I nearly bloody died. So I ended up in hospital 
this prog, somebody else steps in in my place to do this special force. Are you tough enough? At the same time, SES or Dale's wins run. So that all goes out. I recover. Sometime later, it's out. And I get a call um, between series one and two. Series one, I went out. I didn't watch it. And if that, but I had people talking about it. And another producer from the show, from SES or Dale's wins, kept calling me up and says, we really want you to come on the show. And I went, well, why do you really want me to come on the show? Because, because we know your background, your this, your that, blah, blah, blah. And I said, mate, I'm not coming to London. He goes, well, I'll come to Hereford. So he came to Hereford, sat in my apartment. We chatted about what the show was all about, this, that, the other. And I still hadn't seen it. And he gave me a disc to watch. He says, just watch it. Tell me what you think. We'd really like you to come on it. If you like it, let us know. So next time I went on a bodyguard task, which was again back to Nigeria for the whole thing, I was bored, sat in my room. I watched it. And I thought, actually, you know what? It ain't as bad as I thought it was. It weren't about people rolling around with knives in the mouth and stabbing people in the neck and all this mm. stupid nonsense. It was all about, you know, people being challenged. It wasn't about us. It was about the, the, the people on the show. It was about their backstories and what they were trying to get out of it. We were there just to add authenticity to it and experience. And I thought, actually, I might like this. So I decided, right, I'll, I'll do it. So come the second series, just before it got, ready to film, I went, got called down to London. I met Anne, Foxy and Ollie at a chat, blah, blah, blah. They welcomed me in and it went from there. And it was, it was like being back in the, it was quite good because it was the banter and the fun, as you know, from the rugby world, you know, you get back together. It's, you never lose that camaraderie, do you? And yeah. then, although we hadn't really worked together before, you know, we were in the same sort of boat and we, it, it was a good crack. It was good fun. And on top of that, it wasn't acting or anything. It was just being natural. Yeah. And there's no real, there's no rehearsals to the show. Um, Cause you've been a DS de- before as well, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been a DS in the parachute regiment and a DS in the SAS. Right. So I knew exactly what it was all about, what you're looking for, the characteristics of the people you're trying to do. You know, you're not there to break people. You're there to peel them back, find out what they really like, and then build them up to what we're looking for. Somebody you can mold and adapt to various situations. You shout at people a lot on SAS who dares wins, yeah. but one thing I took out of your book is the DS don't shout at people, do they? No, that that is the that is a big difference. When people say, "Well, it's not really like the SAS," is it? it well, the one part that is is what we're looking for as DS. What we're looking for, we're looking for the real you. We're looking for a way of stripping you back to you finding who you are, and that's what the regiment does. But the regiment doesn't do it the way we do it in on this program, screaming, shouting, but that. You've got to remember, we've only got a short period of time. And if you're trying to put something over as entertainment to the public, the way the regiment does it, it's all very quiet. It's all very polite. It's all very, that ain't going to come across as good entertainment. But in the regiment itself, that's the hardest thing about the regiment is for the first time in your army career, you don't get shouted off. You get asked to do something. You get asked to march 50 miles with, you know, 80 pounds on your back in this free time. And if you don't want to do it, they just go, okay, away you go. And then for you as a soldier, not being shouted at, for the first, it's hard for somebody to go, well, no, I have a choice. I don't want to do it. I ain't going to do it. And that's why the numbers go from 280 to probably five to seven that pass at the end. Because yeah. a lot of people haven't got the self-motivation. We'll talk more about that shortly. I just, um, just going back to the SAS Who Dares Wins, but the, yeah. the, um, the interrogation phase, you know, when you sit opposite someone on the table and you really put them through their paces. Oh, the mirror room. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. You've got you've got a daughter, don't you? Or daughters? Yeah. When they bring daughters. home a boyfriend. Oh yeah, they get it. They must be absolutely bricking it. Oh yeah. In the early days, exactly what happens. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. 
oh yeah, he's the rules, he's, he's the regulations, and you will follow him. Because if you don't, he will disappear. And they're like, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> yeah. Did, Absolutely. did any of them just take flight straight away? It, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it has happened, yeah. I remember one time where I didn't quite mean it in the way I said it was, but um, one daughter had this young boyfriend. They were younger and stuff, you know, and I just said, you know, no drinking, no no cra- no uh, joyriding, and no sex, no drugs. And the kid's like, ah, what the hell? I said, if you do, I will kill you. And he looked at me and he's like, wow. And I said, if I don't kill you, somebody else will kill you. And I didn't quite mean it like, I kind of meant that to be funny, but I don't think he took it quite funny, maybe because of the way I spoke to him. <laughs> so sometime later, um, this young kid is walking with my daughter over the, the old bridge in Hereford and um, a good friend of mine, and he's called Monster. He's huge. He comes walking across and he knows my children. He knows my daughter. So he went, hey, I know your dad. I knew you to the boyfriend. The boyfriend looks at him and he goes, well, I- I'm Dan. And he goes, well, Dan, you hurt her. I'll kill you. And just walked off. <laughs> just keep going, jeez, he fucking means it. Jesus, yeah, I'll so be out of there. He, he took, he took flight. Fair <laughs> <laughs> yeah. play to him. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, you weren't you weren't the best young lad when you were when you were before you got into the into the regiment. Was that all just part of you trying to stay out of trouble? Was that the was that your kind of only option? You're thinking, shit, what am I going to do? Go to the military? Because you hear that that's a familiar story with a lot of people. It was part. It was definitely part of it. It wasn't the only option I had because I then went into the cadets, and I was enjoying the cadets. And I, you know, I left school about the age of thirteen, and because I didn't see, I, I couldn't understand when I was in school. Why do I need to learn algebra? Why do I need to learn how to, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's? It didn't make sense to me. And I, at that time, I think it was 11, 12-ish, I, I joined the cadets. And the cadets made sense to me because the people shouting at me and telling me to do things, the teachers there were telling me how to save someone's life. They were teaching me first aid. They were teaching me how to shoot a weapon. They were teaching me how to read a map. And that made sense to me. Mm. Where schooling didn't, so I gravitated straight towards the military life, if you like, and I, I kind of like being disciplined and being put in my place, and knowing there's a bigger fish here that can, you know, teach me something and put me on the right track. So that's where it all really started. And then, as I, I you know, as I was progressing through life, yeah, I was getting in a lot of trouble, fighting, and I got stabbed, and and I was getting into the gangs, and it was getting quite serious, you know, people getting slashed and stabbed, and it was getting bad, and I knew. I need to get yeah. away from my own town. I need, I need to get into the military now. I need to get away from this. You got into a knife fight at one point, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, when I was 15, yeah. Can you tell me about I was, that? I ended up, yeah, I ended up, uh, fight, again, like it was this little gang warfare sort of thing where we all sort of 
hated each other one minute, all fought together against another gang. It was, it was really a mixed up mess. And I ended up fighting with these brothers uh, on a railway bank, just the back of my house. And I got the better of one brother. And if you can imagine, it's an embankment that, that drops down. So I've got the one brother sort of pushing him down the bank, kicking him in the face virtually. And his other brother came behind me, stuck the knife in my back. And as the knife went in the small of my back, he pulled my legs. So then he went all the way up my back and then at the top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was, I think I was close to, very close to bleeding to death with that. And I think that, that I was 15 and a half or so. And I think that was it where I realised I'm going to die. I'm, I've got to get away from this now. You know, and, and, and friends in that from that area later on did get stabbed to death, did get shot, did take drug overdoses. So it was the right path to go. But that was a hard lesson to learn. And I was lucky, very, very lucky. Because I did, I did get into, I started working at the same time. You know, I had a factory job, which was illegal at the time. And I was earning more money than my mum back then. At that time, I was in the, in the factory working nights. There was an old guy called Joey Taylor. And he'd been all through the war and all this sort of stuff. And he, he just used to sit me, he had no tea for anything. He'd just sit there and, and go, you. He goes, you need to go in the army. You need to go. And let me tell you about the military. And he was telling me all these stories about him being in war and all this. And then one day, I'll never forget it. A... a a vehicle pulled up to the factory where we were working to collect some work that we'd done. And another old guy got out and I was loading up on, off a forklift onto the back of his truck for him. And he went, he goes to me, he says, is that Joey Taylor? And I went, yeah. And they just run to each other. They're like hugged and like started chatting. They'd been in the military together and hadn't seen each other since after the war. And the old guy grabbed me and he goes, he goes, when that man was on duty, everybody slept. He goes, he was one of the most Brilliant soldiers and safest guys you could ever be around. And about old Joey. Oh, it's got chills. It's awesome. Yeah, I know. And I was like that. I, 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 they were almost crying, these two old boys, you know? And I was like, geez, he ain't just telling me stories. This old bloke's a legend. And I thought, I can't afford, that's where I want to go. I want to I want to be, people say that about me. How, how did you react when you first, so obviously you go through all the training and you were a hell of a recruit as well. And that was kind of, your dad didn't really support you. When you when you're going in, but then you kind of you made him proud, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say he didn't support me. I think he did. He he did what he thought I needed. I wasn't a person who'd sit there and, and let my dad tell me, "Hey, we really love you. You're going to do this. You're going to do that." We, it was an hard lifestyle, and he wasn't that sort of person anyway. And, and he put the rocket up my ass if, just before joining, saying, "You won't make it," because he knew if I heard him say that I'd say to myself which I did I'll prove you wrong and I did really well I mean out of against seven original that started 70 of us started seven originals finished I was the champion recruit I was the best of that platoon in terms of you know start to finish sort of thing and there was some of the guys there with me great guys great soldiers great people but they were grown men to me they had hairy chests and muscles and tattoos and mature and they'd been around a bit and I thought, oh, and I've done it. This is great. And and I remember seeing my dad's face, you know, smiling at my just didn't say it. He's just like, let's go for a beer. But that was his way of saying, you know, well done. And it wasn't until after he died, as you probably read in the book, then I realised how proud he was and what he actually did know. Yeah, because he kept a lot of um, cutouts and things like that of you, didn't he? News, newspaper clippings. and. But he, he kind of, he kind of never, never really told you much during his life and then you found out later that he was collecting. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, he, he was... I, I, I remember coming back, one particular incident, which, again, I don't say in the book, I came back from... We did an hostage rescue out in Iraq, and 
I came back and my mum and dad were going to meet in town to do something. I met them in town. We met this little pub and watched it. And my dad's not wonderful. He's watching the TV and all this sort of stuff generally. And as we were having a little drink, it came up as a news flash on the on the TV about this hostage rescue, SAS. And my dad, I remember seeing my dad at the time and he's got his beard in his hand and he just stopped drinking, stopped, started watching the telly and then he's just looking at me going, but never talked about it, never said anything about it. So he knew that you were involved in that? Yeah, somehow he knew. Uh, I didn't say anything. I hadn't spoke to anybody about it. I hadn't spoke to my mom about it or nothing, no, nobody. Uh, anyway, so I didn't say anything. But then again, like I said, after he died, he had all these little clippings about when I was in Belfast with the parachute regiment, about this incident, about that, all my memorabilia of, you know, even cadet stuff and my boxing. He, he, he even had, um, when, I, when I'd been boxing, the programs from, I don't know where he'd gone from because I never, I, I never brought him back. But he obviously his mates from the pubs because mm. it was all Midlands boxing. So they give him oh, you, you son one tonight and he's the poet, that sort of stuff. He had everything. Wow. And he had all this stuff about, you know, when I joined Champion Recruit to when I went to Belize, little stories about in Belize, you know, and Northern Ireland when that was bad, where people killed and you know, this sort of stuff. And yeah, he had everything. Right? when you when you were in the pub with him and he kinda of looked at the T V and then looked at you, did you Yeah. Did you give any sort of acknowledgement, like even not acknowledging to acknowledge that that was you that was involved in what he no, was watching on TV? I never said anything. I never even said anything. I just, just, just looked at. It. I just caught him, the man, the man, which was different. And I, thought, and I was, in my head, I was thinking, yeah, he knows, but he does know. I didn't say anything. Then we changed the subject almost immediately. But another time, you know, again, meet him in the, these pubs. And his, his friends again. We'd go to the toilet. These old boys that he drink would go. Oh, he's so proud of you. He's so proud of you. Oh, that's pretty you cool. stay out of trouble now. He'd be like, you stay out of trouble now. Because I've been in a lot of trouble before. Because he's so proud of you. You stay out of trouble. I mean, Dad was a big old bruiser himself. You know, he, he got a bit of a reputation. <laughs> so it was really it was really nice, you know, to to know at the end. I wish, if you could turn back the clock, I wish I'd have sat and spent time with him talking about it. And, you know, the, the regret I do have is not being a little bit more open with him, a little bit more, spending a bit more time and saying, hey, this is where I've been. This is what I've done. So I, and I always used to say to people, listen, no matter what, how you feel with your parents, you'll, you'll lose them soon. Spend time with them. Spend time. Tell them you love them. Tell them. Talk about stuff that you might think is trivia and it'll be well, well worth it. I want to talk about some of those war stories now, if you can, if we can talk yeah. about any of them. Can you remember when you first got into your first gun battle and how you how you reacted and, and what, what was happening? Um, yeah, I mean, when I, I say there's always sort of skirmishes, even from when I, when I went out to Belize, I've just I've just finished training, and the battalion was in Belize, and it was pretty hot out there at the time. There was a, a bits of conflict going on across the border of Guatemala and Belize. There was drugs things going on this at the other. And I remember there was a couple of shootings out there, and I wasn't directly involved in, but I was in the area and, and, and on the ground at the time, thinking, "Well, this is real. Somebody's just been shot, been killed." So that was quite. A growing up point of realizing, wow, this is this is real stuff. And then, you know, I I talk about in the book a good friend of mine, Benny, uh, Benny Bentle, who gets killed. He got and I watched his body being put off the other and, and that was like, oh geez, this there's no pissing around here. This is real. And then Northern Ireland, you know, while I was in Northern Ireland, remember, you know, bombs going off quite close by, being rounds being fired all over the place. And again, two or three people getting killed on that tour. So it was always a slow progression of building up to, and then in the regiment, you know, it was, you're virtually, you're full on, you know, everything from getting bombed to getting mortared to getting shot at to shooting against people, 
it's happening and it yeah. happens a lot you mm. know because that is the world now that we're in just for someone that's listening for listening to this and doesn't know what the uh, regiment is the regiment's what people in the SAS call the SAS they call it the regiment so yeah so you're always in those hairy situations yeah you know everything from you know indirect combat calling jets into to smash positions bad positions they know we're taking it or to almost hand to hand fighting to take over a position so can you talk about anything outside of the SAS yeah I mean after one of the jobs I did when uh, I was doing security training I was out in Somalia and I was in Mogadishu bear in mind you know I've been face to face with people who try to kill me and all the rest of the stuff and I was kind of overall trying to be killed anymore and they wanted some sort of normal life and I was we were training out in um, Mogadishu in Somalia and me and a good friend and I remember I was still in this classroom and I'm teaching these guys it's a security company for you know because Mogadishu was quite quite bad and still is I think while I'm talking this massive explosion goes off and I'm in this sort of classroom and all of a sudden half the roof comes in, all the electrics are hanging down, the glass, which was supposed to be bulletproof glass, which was sort of that, that thick. About an inch thick. Yeah, came straight inches across the room, past my face, and stuck into the wall on the opposite side. That would, I'd have been an inch forward, it cut the top of my face off. So, and, and all the students are all laying across the floor, then there's gunfire going on everywhere, chaos going on everywhere. So I'm trying to get, and I'm thinking the guys on the floor were all either dead or badly injured. They weren't. It was a force of the blast just threw them all to the ground. And what it was was um, the terrorists basically managed to drive in on a lorry, a lorry full of explosive to within 600 metres of where we were. I think we killed about 1,800 people. We didn't lose anybody in the camp. And then they had dismounted uh, terrorists on the ground trying to fight forward. Luckily, the military and the sort of police and that overrun it and stopped it all, but yeah, I mean, that was, I was out and I was thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm never going to get away from this. Yeah, that's serious. Fucking Jesus. Um, when people talk about the SAS, they talk about, it's a thinking man soldier or there's a term like that, isn't there? So most of the situations you get in, you're, you're usually outnumbered. Am I right? Yeah, you're not, in the best, you're not in the best place, best position. Yeah, you've got to come up with something smarter and think out the box and come up with a, a you know an option to overpower, overrun and, and beat that situation. You always end up in one of those moments of glad to be alive when you get out of it. You're like, how did you just get out of that? We, we're privileged in many ways with the SF because we do get a little bit more information. Uh, our level of operation is a little bit higher. But you, gen- you do find that once you hit the ground, it, it all changes. It's about being able... I think we just trained better and we did have better equipment maybe. But yeah, you always end up in a situation. I don't think it's ever... I don't think it's ever been in our favour in terms of numbers of enemy against us. We've always gone against. And mm. I think that's, if you think about it, you know, most warfare is psychological as well. And I remember in the Second World Gulf War, you know, when we crossed the border, we went in behind the lines before the ground war really started. And we've got certain weapons, certain skills, and all the rest of this stuff. And um, Is this the first Gulf War, is it? Second, this second. is the second one. And I, rem- I remember, yeah, we, we were supposedly going to come up against all this enemy and all this sort of stuff. But as we're fighting our way forward, I remember you call, calling the jets, fire these mortars. Fire. And if you were the enemy, sat there, you think big mortars are coming in, rockets are coming in. This is, this is a big fucking unit coming towards us. It was eight of us. <laughs> so 
we're already winning the psychological battle. So they're like picking food. And I think that's why we win all the time is because of our psychological experiences and, and way to, and we, we always have a number of options up our sleeve as we're going forward. Yeah, and we generally don't go towards attritional warfare. We're not coming straight out. We're going to come around you. We're going to come from behind you. We're going to come sneak in the dark. We're and that, that's kind of what gives us the advantage all, all the time. And the belief of, it ain't going to be my day today to not win. Mm. You know, and we do have that. The, the trust and the camaraderie. You know, there's only four of us and we've got up about 20 of them. I know every one of them ain't going to go backwards or let me down. And when you've got that, if you're the enemy, got that coming out, you're like, whoa, I'm out of here. Have you read Bravo to Zero? I haven't, no. I mean, I know a fair bit about it. I'm sure you do, yeah. So in that book, I was amazed how much detail the SAS go into before they go into a mission. Like you're talking which way a door opens, which what kind of door handles oh, yeah. they have. Can you can you give me some insight into how much detail you'd go into before before a mission? Yeah, you, you literally, I mean, your plan, you, you always start with any of your plans and your missions as to what's the end state. We have to get that ostrich released by this time. So that's how, that, we've got to work towards that. So we'll work all the way backwards from that. We need to be here, we need to be there. So we, we, we'll talk about, you know, the person, what we know about it, the person we're going after to save, what, what the situation is, everything, everything about that person, medically, what his condition is, what was last known, what we do know. What we know about the people who are holding him, and that's based on, you know, intelligence from maybe from the sky, you know, from that sort of stuff, or from prisoners before or whatever. So you work right down to what weapons they have, how they fight. It's not hard to find all that sort of information. And then right down to the building, what's it made of? What explosives do we need? What size walls are they? How, how much explosives are we going to need to get in through the roof, through the walls, through the windows? What are the doors exactly like you just said? Which way does the door open or close? Or, you know, which way is the handle? Where the engines are, so we don't, you know, waste any time on that sort of stuff, and and all the way around to the perimeter, and all the way back, and then it goes all the way back to us getting dressed. What kit we're going to wear? What night visions we're going to use for this? Because we don't use all the same kit all the time, you know. And it's it, it's detailed planning, but, but the big thing about all what you know, although we say all that, we know we want to know every single thing, right down to the guy holding him is a Gemini, <laughs> the guy holding him's got one scar and he's got one tooth missing. So, but once you've got all that, you've got a good firm plan. We go, right, this is what we're going to do. This is what we'll do if that doesn't work. This is what we'll do if that doesn't work. Let's go. And you always find as soon as you hit the ground, you know, you've gone from, okay, the helicopters will drop us here. This is, and then all of a sudden, as soon as we got on the vehicle, we're off, whether that's a vehicle or foot or parachute or, or it changes. Everything's going to change now. Although we've got that plan, that's a skeleton. There's no meat on that bones. It's just a skeleton. It's just a star point and a driving force to where we want to go. And, you know, you've, everybody's got to be flexible enough and be able to adapt. And we can, because we're trained so hard to go. We know. Billy said he was going to go left, but now Billy's gone right. Well, I know he's gone right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And so be prepared for change. And that's where we really sort of, uh, one of our best tools we have is being prepared for change. And every job I've done, we've had great detail. It's never gone to plan. That mm. way. It's never as... You've envisaged it before you got there. So even with all that detail, you know, you get to that door that you've expected, you know which way the engines are, but oh, what you didn't know, they've now put a, a, a jail-like door in front of that on top of that. We weren't ready for that. So now what we're going to do? You know, it's just being able to adapt and find an alternative or a way of going under it, over it, through it, or behind it. 
Uh, it wrapped in two words: adaptability and flexibility, and that's what we're pretty good at. Is there ever is there ever times when I know you're sort of in the public eye now, but is there ever times where I guess like guys in the SAS must struggle when they come out and realise how what they've done for their country and and how many people they have saved, and they get absolutely no recognition outside of the military. And I know, I know yeah. you probably do now a little bit more because. You've got profile, but... I think it's more... I, I, I don't think what we do... We know when we go into our, our game, we're not about recognition. We literally generally don't talk about anything, don't, you know, not to the extent that we do, but, I mean, even less than that. And I think what upsets us, upsets the people more than anything, is not that we don't get recognition. It's when people, the disrespect that you see around the country when people are ripping down statues for no reason or de- or defacing things for no reason. And you just think, you know, I went to war for all that. And I, I remember being down, in, in, and I'll tell you what, it was, it was Trump was coming to the UK. Regardless of what you think of Trump, Trump was invited to the UK as a, you know, it, it was a state visit. So regardless of what you think of him, have a bit of respect because that's, and I went down to London and the four things I saw was, was disgusting. And to, for our people to allow that to happen, that's just totally respect that nobody should have. And I remember saying I was protecting some camera guy and he said, he goes, well, that's your fault. I goes, why is that my fault? He says, well, you fought for, you know, freedom of speech. That's freedom of speech. That guy there with that sign with effing on and da 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 And mm. I went, you know what? Yeah, you're probably right. So that that's kind of what upsets, you know, military people in general. Mm. Because, disrespect. Because, you know, nobody wants to go to war. Believe, I mean, a soldier does initially, but once you've been, war is horrible. War is horrendous. You know, and you really see who suffer. And it's always, you know, the poor civilians and the people not directed to that suffer. And you just don't want to see that. And then when you see, you know, like people beating up old old people and this, that, it, it's, that's pretty sickening. That's pretty mm. pretty bad. And, and I always believe, and I know a lot of people don't, is that we should have national service. People should go into the military. And the reason I say that is because not they don't have to go into be war fighting because the army in all war fighting. You know, we have some of the best communication systems in the world we have some of the best medical in the world we have some of the best engineers in the world but for all young kids leaving school that are not going into university or into frontline whatever jobs there might be then i think they should go into the military for two years and be taught and you've got a job you get paid but what you will get you'll get camaraderie and you'll get discipline you'll get understanding you'll get respect of why we do what we do not just what the military why there is systems in place mm. you know because if you don't get that discipline then you end up you know, adding to the cause of the problem. I know I mentioned recognition before, but there's probably no higher recognition than meeting the Queen. Um, yeah. And, you know, you received your MBE, um, which your parents attended. That must have been something pretty, pretty special for them. That was that was great, you know, to be able to do that. Um, and have them there for it, because it wasn't that long after that, really, the died anyway, so. Can you tell me about um, the, the joke you shared with Queen Elizabeth II? Yeah, so so what happened? I, I got 2007, I think it was, it was I, I got um, the, whatever you call it, the call to go and get my MBE, you know, being decorated by the Queen for this, that, the other. Long, long story short, I was working, I'd, I'd left the military by just after that, and then I was doing, I was doing all these jobs. So I was, every time the lady in waiting, or it came from the, the official uh, royals, this invitation, I turned it down. And not to be disrespectful. So I was busy and 
I didn't go until the fo- the fourth invitation was more. You need to get your ass down here. If the Queen's had enough, you should be here, sort of thing. So I thought, oh, I better go. So that's when I went. And um, yeah, so, so just before you go out, you march out to meet the Queen and receive the awards. You know, the lady in waiting does the introduction. Ma'am, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. M.A. Billingham. And they do recite some of the things that you've done and why you're getting it, which is obviously quite nice. So as I, as I, she does all this. I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that. Now. That's good. And I'm just about to walk out. And then she says to everybody, including the Queen, and this is the only man ever to keep Her Majesty waiting four years. And I was like, shit. And I just saw everybody's face go, uh-oh. And as I got to it, she just went, ah, Mr. Billingham, you'd be busy, I see. I said, yes, man. <laughs> and so she took it quite lightly. But, yeah. did, you, did you did you get to chat to her afterwards? Or was it in and out and back to... No, no, she... We, I didn't personally know, but like she went around all the parents and all the all the visitors and stuff, and spent time speaking to them about about each individual. Yeah, yeah. but I'd met her before. I'd met her before at the camp. I looked after her before at the camp, so I've had good chats with her before. Have you? Yeah. So you've yeah, yeah, so yeah. what been a bodyguard for her, or or oh, just, just while she came to the camp, I I kind of escorted her and chaperoned her around parts of the camp for one of her visits, yeah, and we just had a good old chin, chin wag. Then I, I took her along and introduced her to all the people and said, this is so-and-so, this is what he does, this is so, and we just had a bit of a laugh about that. Lovely, lovely woman, straight down to earth. So when I met her after, she knows I was a busy man. <laughs> <laughs> She'd awesome. me on a busy day. That's awesome. God, you're you rolling some, with some big names. Brad, Angelina, Sean Penn, Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> Boom. Mic drop. Well done. Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a, a strange old journey so far. Hopefully, there's more to come. Well, Mark Billy Billingham, thank you so much for for your time. Thanks for coming on the show, and and thanks, thanks thank you very much for your service. Thanks, mate, and uh, keep doing what you do well. Stay safe. Have a great New Year. You too. If you like this interview, make sure you get your hands on his book, The Hard Way, and leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you get your podcasts on. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 